Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Around the world, an estimated 55 million people live with dementia. Yet only a quarter have been formally diagnosed with the condition. How will technological innovation improve diagnostic devices and what impact could it have on health systems? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and also on today's show. Music has a huge influence on our emotions. The author and neurobiologist, Professor Nina Krauss, explains why. Sound waves are really quite well definable, but our brain then translates them into brain waves. And remarkably, we can look at how the brain processes these different sound ingredients. And challenge yourself with our latest book giveaway. Don't miss out on your chance to win Professor Krauss's new book on sound and cognition. But first... Dementia is a debilitating range of conditions experienced by an increasing number of people around the world. The syndrome may start as mild cognitive impairment, like forgetfulness or what we might call senior moments. But it progresses and attacks a person's mental agility and eats away at their memory. Eventually, people become incapable of looking after themselves. Some mental decline is a natural part of aging, but too often, clinicians and patients believe that dementia is inevitable. It isn't. And treatments are slowly emerging. Testing for dementia will become increasingly important as populations age, but the diagnosis is just the start. It's estimated that about 55 million people in the world have dementia, of whom probably only a quarter have actually been diagnosed with the condition. Simon Long is an editor at The Economist and regularly writes about dementia. The numbers are wrong because many countries have very little data or no data at all. And it's a condition where diagnosis is difficult and it's a condition that is quite hard to define. How is dementia normally diagnosed? Let's say, how do clinicians test for Alzheimer's disease? Well, Alzheimer's is the commonest cause of dementia, accounting for maybe between 60 and 80% of cases. But it's far from the only one. There are literally dozens. So dementia is normally diagnosed by cognitive tests, by people taking memory tests in the old days on pencil and paper, nowadays more often on a laptop or tablet, by seeing how their brain is working. You then get to the question of what is causing the dementia and so whether anything can be done about that. And for that, normally people are referred to very expensive scans of their brain, uh, PET scans or MRI scans, and sometimes to a lumbar puncture, which is inserting a, 
a needle into the spinal column to withdraw cerebrospinal fluid from which they can detect the presence of certain proteins, uh, beta amyloid and tau, which are associated with the development of Alzheimer's. We spoke to Paola Barbarino, the chief executive of the charity Alzheimer's Disease International. She told me why the organization's annual report this year is about diagnosis. When I started looking into big data coming from wearables, obviously there are a lot of companies that are gearing up to do diagnosis through new technology. But still, there is a lot of people, as I hear from our community, that are still finding having a diagnosing incredibly difficult and often resort to bogus website, to bogus information on the web. You wouldn't want not to be diagnosed for cancer or for heart disease. So why is this happening to dementia? So these were the drivers that really had us thinking about the report. And then there was more COVID-19 and now a link, a possible link between cognitive deterioration and dementia. What is the diagnostic tool that you're most excited about? Well, at the moment, there is the possibility of blood biomarkers really coming onto the market. So essentially, you can take the blood of an individual and then discover within that blood sample whether that individual has a a biomarker, has a marker for that particular disease. Now, a lot of the biomarkers currently are developed for Alzheimer's disease, for one disease only, but there are more coming up on stream. So hopefully this will become a simpler way to diagnose. You just take a blood sample, you send it to a lab, and then you get a test result. That would be a great way, simpler, less traumatic, and much more accessible. So Simon, how do these blood biomarker tests work? Well, one has been around for quite a long time, and that's a a genetic test for a variant of a gene known as the APOE4 gene, which is known to give people a high susceptibility to Alzheimer's. But that's still only susceptibility, not the disease itself. So the new test, which is expected to come within the next year and is very close to final validation, tests for a variant of one of those proteins, the tau protein, and that is apparently extremely accurate in diagnosing Alzheimer's. So I think what doctors are suggesting is that people with symptoms of mild cognitive impairment give a blood sample and that sample be tested both for the genetic marker, this variant of the APOE4 gene, and for levels of this form of the tau protein. And that would give a very clear indication of Alzheimer's or the risk of Alzheimer's. So are there any innovations to detect patients before they become symptomatic? There's a lot of work going on, as you can imagine, with artificial intelligence and IT. So the old pencil and paper tests have long been replaced by much more sophisticated tests, which are much more reliable because they don't have the cultural and educational biases, which are hard to avoid in traditional tests, nor do they have what's called a learning bias. That is, if you're tracking people over time, as time goes on, they get better and better at these tests just through practice. So these tend to be passive tests 
tests which measure what the brain is doing in response to certain stimuli, particularly visual stimuli, because the eye-brain relationship is one that's particularly easy to track in these senses. And they can be followed either by EEG, electroencephalographic headsets, sort of caps that people wear and monitoring their brainwaves as they watch pictures, or simply through clicking on a mouse as they're looking at a series of images going past on a screen. Let's stick with AI for the moment. I've heard that it's possible to detect cognitive changes in the way that people write. Is that true? It is indeed. I mean, people have long known that. I mean, for example, people who've examined Ronald Reagan's speeches long before he died say that it is possible to detect in his speech patterns evidence of the Alzheimer's he would go on to develop later. And the novelist Iris Murdoch, uh, one study done of her novels written in her 40s and 50s, say that it's clear to see signs in the use of language, in the impoverishment of her vocabulary and syntax, evidence of the Alzheimer's she was to have much later on. It's the disease she died with when she was 79. An increase in testing capacity for Alzheimer's is unquestionably important. But some people might not want to know about their forthcoming onset. Paolo Barbarino of Alzheimer's Disease International again. This is something that we have worried about for many years, in fact. But nowadays, we all know that it's better to know that you have something so that you can prepare for it, you can organize your life around it, and that there are good chances that you will be surviving for a a period of time or you may survive full stop. Now, in the case of Alzheimer's and dementia, you could have this for a long, long time. And in many cases, people still perceive it to be a kind of death diagnosis, but that is not necessarily the case. And there will be stages of a disease. There will be things that will happen in your life. And it's so important that yourself and your family and the people around you know what's going on and what can they expect. Okay, Simon, why can increasing testing capacity overwhelm health systems? The world is getting older and the risk of developing dementia increases enormously the older people are. So whatever happens, there are going to be a lot more people with dementia. Up till now, people have been reluctant to be diagnosed, often because they feel it's hopeless that there's no cure for this, and because they're scared of being told that they've got dementia. It sounds like a sentence of brain death. Correspondingly, many doctors, up to a third of physicians in some survey, believe that dementia is just a fact of ageing life. It's something that people get. So they have been reluctant to diagnose it. Now, the second of those is certainly changing as more and more knowledge about dementia comes on and is spread through the medical profession. And increasingly, there is hope that there are, if not cures for dementia, at least ways of medically treating it to make it a lot easier to live with. Uh, The first drug for Alzheimer's was actually approved earlier this year by America's authorities. There's a lot of controversy about whether that actually works. It's known to have a big effect in reducing beta amyloid, one of those proteins in the brains of patients. What's controversial is whether it actually succeeds in reducing cognitive decline. But Many think that other better drugs will appear soon. So there is hope now that, particularly for Alzheimer's, treatments are in the pipeline. Aducanumab is a therapy that works in the early stage of Alzheimer's disease. So in that case in particular, they require a confirmed 
diagnosis of Alzheimer's at an early stage. If you are in a mid-stage or in a late stage, the drug doesn't seem to have the same effect. Our support of aducanumab is in the context of the fact that it's fantastic that there is interest in the industry to produce, research, innovative therapies for Alzheimer's disease. So it's important that something did get approved because that gives a real boost to the whole industry. Nevertheless, you know, we are at the dawn of all of these possible therapeutics. And our particular concern is that they are very costly still. So we are trying to work with industry to ensure that they understand that there's a lot of people in the world that won't have access to these if they are too expensive. But, you know, for a lot of people, access is still a mirage because for the vast majority of the world, they don't get any diagnosis nor the diagnostic equipment even allows to do that. So in a way, this is a first step and we are interested to see what is going to happen. Now, Simon, what are the basic steps that people can do at any age, but in particular older people, to reduce the risk of getting dementia? Completely removing the risk of dementia is probably impossible, but there are ways of greatly diminishing the risk. I mean, there are now some 12 identified lifestyle factors which greatly increase the risk of dementia. And by changing those, people can reduce their risk hugely. And they are, by and large, the regular facts of a healthy life. So drinking less in middle age in particular, smoking, that is a risk, Uh, obesity, that is a risk, and so on. It's very like many of the risk factors for heart disease. So yes, lifestyle changes can greatly reduce the risks of developing dementia. What can be done to make sure that people are diagnosed in time, but not in a way that it overwhelms health systems? It's very difficult given the strain that healthcare systems around the world are under and the sheer numbers of people that are likely to develop dementia. We're talking of of numbers that by 2050 are expected to be around 140 to 150 million people. So that's an awful lot of people to look after. So the risk of overwhelming them is really large. What I think a lot of people are hoping is that earlier diagnosis, perhaps even before people have developed the symptoms of mild cognitive impairment, which is the first signs of encroaching dementia, that if those are developed early enough, there are things and drugs becoming available that that can treat them, which will make the condition one that can be dealt with much more at home, in the family and in the community than in medical environments. There is also a lot of worry about, oh my goodness, I'm forgetting my keys, I am developing dementia or Alzheimer's. That's not the case. So we have to be very careful not to suggest that people should all run and get a diagnosis. A checkup is important because that could show you early signs that something may not quite be what it should be and you may have cognitive deterioration. But between cognitive deterioration and developing Alzheimer's and dementia, there's there's a chasm that could be nothing to do with each other. So we need to be always very careful to make sure that people understand that forgetting your keys doesn't mean that you have dementia. You know, it's quite important to make that distinction. Paolo Barbarino, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ken, for having me. Our thanks also to The Economist Simon Long. 
And you can read Simon's reporting in the most recent edition of The Economist. Subscribers can also read his six-part special report from August 2020, in which he explored much more of the science, but also financing care and the ethics of dementia. Go to economist.com slash special dash reports. That's economist.com slash special dash reports. Also this week, you can read our tribute to Aaron Beck, the psychiatrist who developed cognitive behavioral therapy. He recently died at age 100. For all this and more, subscribe. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for your best introductory rate. You can tell them that I sent you. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Music can put you in a certain type of mood, and a mountain of memories come rushing in. This response is how your brain is actually reacting to the sound. The brain waves resemble the sound waves, and everyone's brain waves are different based on their life in sound. But what is the scientific mechanism behind this process? Nina Krauss is a professor of neurobiology at Northwestern University and the author of a new book on the topic. Our life in sound very much shapes who we are because our nervous system inherently changes based on the experiences that we have in our lives. The hearing brain engages how we think and feel and move and engage with our other senses. And as we do this throughout our lives, our brain changes. It becomes sculpted to the things that we pay attention to. Now, I sort of understand that if I'm living in the beautiful bounty of nature versus next to a jackhammer in New York City. But how would that happen in terms of sound? I, I think at, at the root of this are the, the sonic choices that we make. Do we choose to engage with making music? Do we choose with speaking, learning another language? Language in general, language really is mediated through sound, even when we read it. So living in an enriched linguistic environment is important too. And these are all choices that we make for ourselves and our children and educationally for our society. Now tell me about the thesis of your book and in particular the science behind what you're talking about. So as a biologist, I love to think about sound and the brain. 
I can engage in important, often almost mystical sounding or abstract concepts like, you know, why do we feel the way we do when we listen to music that we love? As a biologist, I want to understand how is it that this happens. And, you know, my medium, if you will, is signals. So I look at sound waves. Sound waves are really quite well definable, but our brain then translates them into brain waves. And remarkably, we can look at how the brain processes these different sound ingredients, pitch, timing, timbre, phase, and we can see how good a job our brain is doing processing these different components. And it, it turns out that how we spend our lives in sound really affect how sound is processed. And it, it's interesting, you know, for example, although musicians and bilinguals are both auditory experts, the way in which they process these sound ingredients differs. And if you are raised in a linguistically impoverished environment, there is a neural signature for that too. So we can really look at this in a biological way and, and try to understand some of these aspects of what makes us us. How is it that you're able to observe what's going on in people's minds when they're listening to different sounds? So one of the chapters in the book is called The Quest. And it is the story of how my lab have been trying to figure out how can we access sound processing in the brain. And we've learned to do this with remarkable precision. As, as I'm talking to you now, the neurons in your brain that respond to sound are producing electricity. And we can pick up that electricity with scalp electrodes. And we are now able to look at each individual person and get information on how it is that we process particular sound ingredients. This is a very interesting finding, but where do you take it? I really hope that as people and as I, you know, as we all understand what is going on in our brains biologically, that we will make choices in our lives that will strengthen our sound mind. I question what those choices might actually be. Some musicians choose the flute and others choose the tuba. Can we really read something into their personalities or behavior because of it? Likewise, you might think that a splendiferous writer listens to the harmonic tones of Bach, but Stephen King, the horror novelist, famously blares heavy metal when he writes. So how do we distinguish between what it means for it to be an auditory landscape that leads to some form of fulfillment versus one that just serves our purposes? Our research and the research of converging evidence indicate that it doesn't matter what instrument you play or what language you learn. What is important is that you have engaged your sound mind, which consists of scientifically, we say, the cognitive, sensory, motor, and reward networks of the brain. 
you know, we can think of it as, as how, how we think, how we feel, how we move, and how we coordinate the information from all of our senses. Now, let's take the popular Christian hymn, Amazing Grace. How could our brains shape the way we interpret this melodic sound? Amazing Grace, if you look at it from a signal standpoint, consists of certain harmonics and elements of timing and phase and loudness. And depending on the individual's life in sound, they will process that sound in their own way. Now, because we have figured out a way of measuring sound processing in the brain with remarkable precision, I can measure sound processing in your brain and see how good a job your brain is doing at processing the the harmonics, the phase, the timing. We can play Amazing Grace to a healthy brain and get a response that sounds something like this. We can look at a brain, for example, who has sustained a concussion. And a hurting brain will sound like... One of the things that we have been looking at is, can sound processing in the brain be a biological index of concussion? Making sense of sound is one of the hardest jobs that we ask our brain to do. So you can imagine that if you get hit in the head, it's going to disrupt this very fine-tuned processing. You spoke about a meaningful sonic world. What does that actually mean? What is a meaningful sonic world? A meaningful sonic world is one that your nervous system, your brain, has learned to associate with events, with uh, feelings that are important to you. Play any kind of a sound, you will get a certain response from a neuron in the auditory brain. What we do and how we understand sounds actually changes the way our brain responds to them. This is great. Dr. Krauss, thank you very much. Well, thank you. And finally, our regular listeners are well aware of our frequent book competitions. We pose slightly batty, science-inspired questions, and your answers need to be both analytical and imaginative, exercising both hemispheres of the brain. But this week is slightly different. The answer needs to be factual. We're giving away a copy of Professor Krauss's book on sound and cognition, and the question is... What is the most remarkable example in history in which the auditory landscape of an individual affected an outcome in the world? What we're looking for, for example, a ceasefire that was only agreed when a child's choir could be heard. That sort of thing. And please document your answer with a source. Submit your answers via email at podcasts at economist.com. That's podcasts, plural, at economist.com. And don't forget to include your name and where you are in the message. The terms and conditions for the contest are in the show notes. Good luck.
thank you for listening to Babbage. And while you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's so important. The producers are Jason Hoskin and Abby Soye Oshindairo. Nico Rofast makes the program, and the editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, where my auditory landscape entails my producer screaming in down my ear, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.